Well, good morning to everybody. Yeah, with a little delay there, huh? My uh, grandfather has a saying. He says we can always use the rain, but I'm not so sure he uh, ever had eight inches in one night in his entire life like we had on uh, Thursday night this week at our house. The, we've had a lot of rain, and uh, we're not going to bring the rain with us into the sanctuary this morning. we got a lot to talk about, so it's good uh, to see you all this morning. Thank you for being here. If you are visiting with us uh, this day, you need to know that you're picking up in a conversation that we've been having over the last two weeks. We're exploring our new vision statement, trusting that all belong to God. And in our first week, uh, we re-examined uh, Genesis 1, and we had to reconsider for in order uh, for everyone to belong to God, for all to belong to God, we got to recognize that we belong to God. And that can be sometimes pretty difficult. And last week, we wrestled with a passage from the Gospel of Mark about a Syrophoenician woman, a Greek, who was outside the bounds. She was a person of a different faith, a different religion, a different gender, a different creed from Jesus. And Jesus claimed her as belonging. And this week, we're going to turn uh, to the longest continu uh, continuous story in the Torah. Uh, and it's about... Joshua. And you may remember, uh, uh, or not Joshua, but Joseph. You may remember Joseph because his brothers threw him in a pit one day, sold him into slavery, and lied to their father. The good news for all of us today is we're not going to read all of this story because it would take us all morning. In fact, we're not even going to read everything in your bulletin. We're only going to read from Genesis chapter 42, the first 27 verses. And in order to do that, I've asked Sarah Johnson to help me read this morning. So listen now for the word of the Lord to all of us this day. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are you staring blankly at one another? I've just heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for, for us so that we can survive and not starve to death. Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. However, Jacob didn't send Joseph's brother Benjamin along with his brothers because he thought something bad might happen to him. Israel's sons came to buy grain with others who also came since the famine had spread to the land of Canaan. As for Joseph, he was the land's governor. And he was selling grain to all the land's people. When Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him, their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he acted like he didn't know them. He spoke to them with a harsh tone and said, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. You've come to look for the country's weaknesses. And they said to him, no, no, master. Your servants have just come to buy food. We? We are all the sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants aren't spies. He said to them, no, you've come to look for the country's weaknesses. And they said, we are your servants. We are 12 brothers, sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father. 
but one is gone. Joseph said to them, I've just, as I've said to you, you are spies. But here's how you'll prove yourselves. As Pharaoh lives, you won't leave here until your youngest brother arrives. Send one of you to get your brother, but the rest of you will stay in prison. We'll find out if your words are true. If not, as Pharaoh lives, you are certainly spies. He put them all in prison for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I am a God-fearing man. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay in prison and the rest of you go. Take grain back to those in your households who are hungry, but bring your youngest brother back to me so that your words will prove true and you won't die. So they prepared to do this. The brothers said to each other, we are clearly guilty for what we did to our brother when we saw his life in danger, when he begged us for mercy, but we didn't listen. That's why we're in danger now. And Reuben responded to them, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you? Don't do anything wrong to the boy, but you wouldn't listen to me. So now, this is payback for his death. They didn't know that Joseph was listening to them because they were using an interpreter. He stepped away from the door and he wept. When he returned, he spoke with them again. Then he took Simeon from them and he tied him up in front of them. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put back each man's silver into his own sack and to give them provisions for their trip, and it was done. They loaded their grain onto their donkeys and they set out. When they stopped to spend the night, one of them opened his sack to feed his donkey, and he saw his silver at the top of the sack. He said to his brothers, My silver's been returned. My silver's right here in my sack. Their hearts stopped. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Remind us, O oh God, that you hover here in this sanctuary, just as you hovered over the waters of creation. So we ask, O oh God, that you would reach across the ages and breathe new life into these ancient words, that they might be your word to us here and now. We ask that you might create afresh and anew this very day, and we ask, O oh God, that you would breathe new life into the words of my mouth, that you might breathe new life into the meditations of all of our hearts, that all would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I learned from the biblical scholar Martin Copenhaver this week that there is a town in the great state of Illinois named Normal. And in the great town of Normal, Illinois, there is a statue at the uh, uh, city square, and it is a statue of this. It is a statue of a beautiful-looking man, his hair, like, not out of place, and he has all of his teeth, and he's lovingly gazing into his wife's eyes, and she is beautiful. 
And they have two children who are sitting on their laps. And their children, if you could create children, you would create these. They are lovingly looking at their parents. And uh, there is a plaque on the front of that statue in normal Illinois. And the plaque is inscribed, a normal family. (laughs) I don't know why we uh, have come to think that this is normal. Why do we hold um, this this up as the standard of normal? You know, like families that can get through a Thanksgiving and a Christmas without an argument? Really? Really? Or a family that gets the turkey done just right every year. Or families who take those picturesque vacation photos that we all see on Christmas cards and on our social media platforms. Or those images that we have concocted in our brains that, uh, of those families that never argue. Who are always laughing together. Those families who only bring one another joy and love and support. I don't know about you, and maybe I'm an anomaly here, but I don't live in a place like normal. Not that kind of normal anyway. Maybe that's why uh, that statue in uh, normal Illinois, that statue is the most vandalized structure in all of normal, uh, normal Illinois. Maybe the vandals are striking against this idealized and unrealistic image of the family that none of us can live up to. Let me say this, uh, each family is unique and beautiful. Families communicate and they embody love in different ways. Each family is beautiful, but also messy and broken. Just like our human family. There's actually uh, no real understanding of a normal family. In some families, both of the parents work. In some families, uh, the parents have been divorced, and so they understand family in a different way. And for some folks in the sanctuary this morning, you may be like, I don't claim my family, so I chose a different one. I have a chosen family. I ran into a mother one time who said the only thing that is normal in our family is the knob on the dryer that says normal. (laughs) Or as my assistant Ann Hollis said to me this week, there is nothing normal about the word family. I'm I'm not so sure the church hasn't reinforce this understanding for us the biblical family we talk about sometimes at least that's what I heard when I was a kid but the reality is uh, the biblical family that the Bible sort of reveals and holds up it's not an idealized picture of family and instead the Bible depicts real families with rival siblings and tension between the generations. There is marriage and betrayal. There are children who refuse to honor their parents. And then parents who hold back their blessing, cut them out of their will. There are couples in the Bible who struggle for generations. 
with infertility. There are scandalous affairs. There are single parents. You know, there are teenage pregnancies in the Bible. And there are more broken-hearted widows than one could ever count or name. There's also pain uh, in families in the Bible that we don't like to talk about. There's violence. There's financial desperation. There's abuse. But it's not all bad. There's also love and forgiveness and gratitude expressed in many of the families in the Bible. In fact, what most of us understand as normal family lives is actually what we find in the pages of Scripture. Our family lives can be beautiful and complicated. And our families can be often the sources of love and hurt. That's certainly uh, true for our passage this morning. We know this story well, though it may have been some years since we last read it. We probably learned this story in Vacation Bible School, or maybe we know it from the musical Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Our passage this morning picks up long after that Technicolor Dreamcoat has been destroyed. Our story picks up after jealousy has undermined relationship, after Joseph has been cast into a pit and then sold into slavery by his brothers. Our passage comes after Joseph's brothers have lied to their father by telling him that Joseph was killed by some wild animal. Our passage picks up after the father can cry only tears that a father can and a mother can of losing a son. Our story this morning is family drama on a whole different level. This is like the first script of reality television. We enter into the story this morning. And it's been 20 years. It's been 20 years of silence and estrangement between these family members. But now we find Joseph in a position of power. Joseph is literally running the show in Egypt. And let's be clear for a second. Egypt is the most powerful country in the land. And Egypt has food in the middle of a famine. They have food because Joseph interpreted some dreams correctly. And during five years of abundance, they stored up food for this very day, so every other country in the surrounding region is starving to death. They don't have anywhere else to go. They're desperate. His brother is included who live in Canaan, so their father sends them to Egypt to get food. And Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Much, much has changed in 20 years like it always does. Joseph is an Egyptian now. He talks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. I just want a little credit that I didn't do the hand motions. Like this much credit, okay? You know, Joseph is dressed... In the Egyptian's ruler robe, he goes by an Egyptian name. 
He wears Pharaoh's signet ring. He literally is wearing the gold chain that comes with power and authority. The question that is before Joseph and all of us who are reading this story this morning is this. What will Joseph do? What will Joseph do with the pain that is underneath his power? What will Joseph do with the pain that is right below the surface of his status? What will Joseph do in this moment with his pain? Will he act on it? Will Joseph destroy his brothers? Or will he choose another way? I mean, we could totally understand if he wanted to take out a little vengeance on him, right? They punched him first. He, he is more than due his punch back. Joseph does something that's remarkable in this moment. Joseph, when he could have returned the pain that he has been carrying for 20 years... He doesn't punch him back. Not to the fullest extent, anyway. Joseph doesn't let the pain of the past define his future. Joseph doesn't cut them to the bone. Rather, he seeks to remain connected to them. He chooses a path that transform the future for everyone involved that's why he locks him up for three days that's why he 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 keeps one of them behind he is constantly trying to stay in touch with this family and let me be clear the only way that i think that joseph is able to do this is that over his 20 years of separation with his family joseph in the midst of his isolation and his suffering he has become well acquainted with his pain Somewhere in there, he's accepted what has happened to him. But he doesn't allow that pain to decide what happens next. One of the greatest truths that has encountered me in a long time, it won't let me go, is a saying by uh, Father Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr says, If we do not learn to transform our pain, we will certainly transmit our pain. If we don't learn to transform our pain, then we will certainly transmit our pain. Joseph finds a way in this passage this morning to transform his pain rather than transmitting it, which is incredible considering all he's been through. Abandonment? Some of you have been there. Slavery? Prison? Finds a way to reconcile with them even after all of that which I've also come to believe I'm not sure he was able to do on his own Joseph's pain is transformed because I think he understands that his his story is part of God's story I think it's God who helps him transform his pain because I don't think that any of us are able to transform the pain of our lives on our own 
only by the grace of God that pain is transformed and relationships are restored. And let me be abundantly clear this morning. Some of you carry a particular type of pain. And I need to be sure you hear me clearly. When our pain is transformed, when we choose to forgive people, it's not letting them off the hook. It's not choosing to erase or condone what has happened to us in our lives. Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers was never okay. There was never going to be a day when that somehow all of a sudden became, oh, we're good. Joseph's forgiveness frees him from being bound by that act. It frees him from being bound by that pain forever. Forgiveness for Joseph, forgiveness for us, is about choosing what kind of person we, he, wanted to be in the world. And that's risky, my friends. Forgiveness is risky because there, is, there, there are no guarantees in forgiveness, in, in forgiveness. There's no guarantee that you won't be hurt or rejected again sometime in your life. And let me be abundantly clear, the greatest temptation is to, to keep that blanket of fear and pain so wrapped around you and to never let it go and to live your whole life out of that place. But Joseph didn't want to return the pain that he experienced. He didn't want to be like his brothers. He wants to be a different person. He wants to be a different person to the world and to his family. And so he gives his brothers food. And not only does he give his brothers enough food to take all the way back to their homeland. Did you hear it in the text? He gave them rations for their journey. He gave them food on top of food. And on top of that, did you hear what they found? It made their heart stop. He gave them their money back. It was sitting right on top of all that food when they opened up the sacks. Later in the story, Joseph will choose to return his younger brother back to his family. Joseph's brothers are, Joseph's actions are acts of grace. They open up the possibility for a new relationship. It's amazing. It's amazing how one person's actions can create so much healing. I learned the story of Liz Huntley, who was formerly Liz Humphrey this past week. Liz grew up in Alabama. Her mom was known as the Queen Bee. And her mom was known as the Queen Bee because her mom was the greatest drug dealer in the state of Alabama with a particular focus in heroin and cocaine. When Liz was five, her dad was arrested and Liz's mom gathered up she and her five siblings and she just distributed the children to family members in their small town in Alabama. When Liz got dropped off at her grandmother's house, her mom disappeared forever. Liz quickly found herself in what we would call a rough home. 
on uh, her first day of kindergarten. Liz went to school alone. No one walked her into the school. No one walked her to her classroom. No one was there to take the first day of school photo. Liz found her way to this tiny little desk. Her grandmother had told her the night before, Now, Liz, when all those papers are handed out, I want you to ask your teacher to mark an X by all the places I need to sign because I'm not going to read all that paperwork when you bring it home. Liz was sitting in her desk with those orders from her grandmother echoing through her brain. She was lonely and scared and afraid. And this teacher walked up, sort of towered over her. And she said, good morning, Elizabeth. I'm so glad you're in my class. Elizabeth didn't know what to say back. She froze. She said what she had rehearsed a hundred times as she walked to school that morning. My name's Elizabeth Humphrey. My grandmother says that you need to put her red X by all the pieces of paper where she needs to sign. Her teacher could see how lonely she was, how broken she was, how scared she was. And her teacher said the most remarkable thing. Well, Elizabeth Humphrey, I am so glad that I get to be your teacher this year. I know something that you don't know, Elizabeth Humphrey, that you are going to be the smartest young person that I will ever teach. I am so glad that I get to be your teacher. Elizabeth Humphrey had never heard anybody say anything like that to her before. Several weeks later, Elizabeth goes to church. She sits right over there. And her pastor preaches on the longest story recorded in the Torah about this guy named Joseph. About how Joseph was abandoned, thrown in a pit, totally discarded and forgotten. And Elizabeth Humphrey said, for the first time in my life, I heard someone tell my story. She said, when my pastor got done, I realized that I could be like Joseph. That I could be the one person in my family system and in the world who could change the whole narrative. Liz Humphrey went on to college, and as soon as she got there, she signed up to mentor students. She found her way to that uh, classroom, just like the classroom she found herself in that day, those many years ago. And she's never stopped mentoring. Liz Huntley uh, then went on to the University of Alabama's law school. She's a litigator in a big firm by day now. But she's a child advocate by life. Liz now uh, is the vice chair of the University of Alabama's School of Law. Liz will tell you that she thought that her life was so broken that there was no way that she would ever trust someone to love them enough to marry them. 
If you ask Liz how long she's been married, she'll say more years than I can remember now. But we have, the, we have three of the most beautiful children you've ever seen. You know, Liz also found her five siblings. Maybe they're not what you would call a normal family. But maybe they are. Friends, the question that was before Joseph and the question that is before us at some time in our life is this. What will you do with the pain that you carry? Will you live your life out of that pain? That's one way to do it. Or, by the grace of God, will you seek by the power of the Holy Spirit, to transform your pain so that you can be a force for good in this world and in your life and in your family. For God so loved the world that God came to us in the flesh and took all the pain of the world right into the very center of God and went to the cross so that pain could be transformed for a different way of life, for a different way of love, for a different way of faith. Thanks be to God. Amen.